We are recording. We should talk about stuff. <laughs> So here we are at the third podcast. This is, uh, um, we're getting through a lot of topics and having some great times. And uh, I actually want to talk about something really exciting that just happened to us this week. A friend of mine, um, somebody that I've known for a number of years, mm -hmm. uh, just recently got started in another nonprofit organization in town. And uh, she's involved with addiction recovery and, and, you know, that kind of whole aspects of the program. And her group, her organization, um, decided that they were going to build a food pantry. And uh, what, what was really excited about it is that we had, uh, our, on Common Ground, our nonprofit organization, had gotten uh, a ton of uh, fixtures and equipment and racking and shelving and refrigeration equipment and all this crazy stuff for, to, for us to be able to de develop our store. And we've got it staged over to our property, but we actually have more equipment than we need for our project. Yeah. And so when we heard about uh, Lisa uh, and, and her program and the need for, uh, you know, shelving and equipment for, for them to be able to put their pantry in place, we actually connected with her. And uh, we're going to meet up either this afternoon or, or later this week for them to, you know, collect some shelving from us. Yeah. And I, I'm really excited about that because... Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of new to the nonprofit industry. Like I'm, my background as an entrepreneur, I'm looking at a certain set of skill sets and you kind of know what you have to work with out in the, out in the environment. Yeah. But when you, when you start doing a deep dive into the nonprofit world, you realize that you're operating from a very different set of rules mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And one of the cool things that I found out about the, the 501c3 structures, the tax structure for a nonprofit uh, here, you know, for that specific type of nonprofit mm -hmm. is that according to the IRS and according to federal tax law, uh, nonprofit organizations are actually allowed to share resources with each other. Which is super interesting. It, it is. It's really exciting. I mean, to me, it's really exciting because you start thinking about the potential of, uh, you know, collaboration and the potential of, you know, basically working together with other organizations. Like, we're, we're brand new. We've been in existence for a little over three years now. Right. And there's organizations that have been around for 25, 35, 45 years that are not necessarily on the same direction or pathway that we're doing, but they're all kind of in the same mission. Like we're all kind of moving in the same direction of trying to increase food security, uh, reduce barriers to food access, you know, basically make hungry people not hungry. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's, that's going to, when you drill it down to the absolute basis, mm -hmm. we're all trying to make it so that people don't starve and so that people have healthy nutrition so that, you know, you have less cases of diabetes, less cases of, you know, uh, nutrition-based um, uh, obesity, and, and, you know, heart disease and hypertension and all of these different killers that are directly related to our food access and to our, and to, uh, the, you know, the health and, and the scarcity of the food that we eat. Yeah. So you've got a lot of organizations that are already kind of working on that. And, and when we started on Common Ground, like our goal was essentially to, uh, you know, figure out what isn't being done. You know, where, where's, where's the holes in the net, you know, where, in, in the social safety net, they call it a, a social safety net is like basically all the different organizations that move together to try and help uh, the vulnerable populations in the U.S. is the social safety net. Yeah. Um, I, I want, cause I wanted you to talk about uh, why do you find it interesting over the fact that about the resources part? Well, okay. Cause you got to understand coming from, from my background as an mm -hmm. entrepreneur, um, everything's very cutthroat. Everything's very doggy dog. You, you protect your resources. Um, you know, you, you, you don't necessarily have partners out in the, in the community, you have competitors, Exactly. you know, and, and, and I've tried to, to run my businesses 
with with more of a partnership mentality. So like I would do co-marketing with other bars downtown Reno when mm-hmm. I was running Five Star Saloon and, and running Rise Night Club. And, and even my different businesses would co-market with each other. But we, we created together, you know, kind of all of us created this downtown scene where people wanted to go down there and they wanted to, you know, kind of bounce from bar to bar and do their thing. But But largely... You're not sharing, like, you know, if I run short on vodka, I'm not going to run down the street to another neighborhood bar and be like, hey, can I borrow a couple of cases of vodka for <laughs> yeah. the weekend? Like, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily happen that way. No, definitely not. You know, in, in, in the for-profit world. But when you when you move over into the nonprofit community and the nonprofit sector, it completely changes the paradigm. Mm-hmm. And, and you're no longer working towards, you know, uh, getting your little piece of, of the pie or, or enlarging your market share or anything like that so much. You're really working on a commonality of goal with other organizations to try and go to, you know, to, to create common, common solutions. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of that. That's the uh, that's the theory. You know, in practicality, some nonprofit organizations do have like a silo mentality where they try and hoard resources, that kind of thing. But it's not necessary. Like, you know, the rules allow for cooperation. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that's fascinating because there's a lot of things that we could be doing as a community that w- that would be easier to do or that would be more effective or that we would be better at if we were working together, if we had four or five different organizations that are collaborating on, on a single cause. Yeah. And, and so I... I get excited about that because I, you know, I'm like, okay, I got what's in my toolkit. You know, what can yeah. I use to be able to effectuate the change that I'm trying to do? And, and I start looking at this and like, oh, my toolkit got expanded because mm-hmm. now potentially, I don't just have what's in my pocket or, or or what's in my you know Connex or storage facility or my backyard or wherever it is that I'm storing stuff. Mm-hmm. I've also got the capability of reaching out to other nonprofits and saying, hey, you know, I, we've got an event coming up. Hey, can I borrow uh, you know 40 tables for mm-hmm. a night? Or, um, you know, these types of kind of, it's not transactional necessarily anymore. It's, it's more of a kind of a give and take and, hey, we're all trying to, you know, help each other. Um, and, and so, so I'm super excited now because we're in a position for, for perhaps the first time to have some concrete physical um, uh, possessions like products that we can share with another organization to help them push on, you know, with their mission. Yeah. And, and to me personally, that, that gives me a, a huge sense of satisfaction to know that, that this organization is going to be more effective in being able to help their, con- their, their clients and being able to uh, effectuate the change that they want to do because they know us, mm-hmm. you know. So, so I dig that. <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. Um, it, it's it's uh, when we were talking about the, the whole idea of, uh, of like um, not wanting to share, I guess, your resources or anything like that. And like it would make it like makes a complete sense also because of the fact that you're in a nonprofit organization a lot of your granting your fundings is is it's you don't you don't it's hard to even get those in the first place so it's like when you get like a resource you don't really want to share it because you know you're like this is what's been really helping me but at the same time you the idea of you guys going at it and being looking at it is like no we should probably get together because maybe Mm -hmm. we can create like even a greater funding or a greater grant and matter of fact the uh the funding organizations are by and large putting this guidance out into the communities now. They're saying, hey, we want to see collaborative applications. We want to see two or three different organizations and a municipal structure. And we want to see that you guys are working together, essentially. And and so it has been proven and it has been studied over a long period of time that those types of agreements and those types of partnerships do work better. Yeah. And and, and it creates a, a situation where you've got multiple people coming to the table with different skill sets and different you know, um, uh, specialties and, you know, maybe different mindsets. So you get a different point of view and it makes the whole process stronger. 
Yeah, I feel like even like looking at it, um, I'm not a business person, but <laughs> me trying to be, become a business person, but like me, like trying it to. It ain't th- that hard. <laughs> <laughs> but like even like trying to think about it, like somebody who would want to do or want, would like to provide a, an organization for funding or anything like that, mm-hmm. that would kind of give out their name to show, hey, we're funding for you. If you do it for multiple companies, I feel like that would give your name even more. So I feel like when you were saying about like the fact that, uh, you know, collaborating make, it's actually been studied, that's actually even better, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, maybe it's because of that too. Um, I mean, yeah, it depends on the funding source because, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're a foundation and you're trying to get the word out that you are a funding source, um, I don't actually know anything about that side of the, the sector at all. Mm-hmm. Like I've never been a funder. I've never been, you know, on, on that, you know, that side at all mm-hmm. um but I, I mean i can imagine what the, the you know what a lot of the uh, uh motivations might be you know a lot yeah. of times the way it was explained to me is that an organization has a goal and what they're doing is they're looking with their funds they're looking for an organization that's going to help them to achieve their goal mm-hmm. so let's say you've got you know some foundation that's got a lot of money from somebody who who willed it to them and uh you know and their goal is to reduce hunger in kentucky <laughs> you know, like, like some, sometimes it gets really specific. Um, and, and so, you know, if there's an organization in Kentucky that is working to reduce hunger, then they, they would become, you know, kind of capable of applying for the grant. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it is, of course, like what you write down and, and, and what your plan is. And it needs to be a, vi- a viable plan, something that makes sense. Yeah, because what I'm kind of thinking of is like um, whenever you kind of see like a website or something and you see this organization, and you see in the bottom, like, oh, um, this was made possible because of, and it shows, like, the, the name of the of the organization that helped them. And then for me, at least, uh, not a person who is part of the business, but for me, when I see that, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. This group or this company or this organization helped these people out. So mm-hmm. that means they support this cause. And when they see that these people are supporting that cause, it makes me interested in the person who helped also uh, fund yeah. And I feel like, I, and then that makes me intrigued to see what they're about. And I feel like, at least in my opinion, I would see that maybe the people who would want to help fund for nonprofit organizations, and if they see that there's like a wider audience or these people are collaborating more, I feel like they would probably be more approachable to be like, oh, I want to fund for you because yeah. you can actually provide a bigger name for us. Well, hopefully, we're going to be, you know, getting our name and getting our information and what we're doing with On Common Ground out to the community too, because that's what we're looking for. Obviously, yeah. is funding to be able to effectuate the changes that we're trying to make. Definitely, yeah. So, um, you know, there's thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of different funding organizations around the world. The question is, um, how do you connect up with them? How do you really, you know, kind of figure out and align your your interests with theirs? Mm-hmm. Um, they've got programs that they use. Like we have um, one program that we use. I can't remember the name of it, but it, it basically goes out and, and collects uh, funding sources and funding information that's put out on the internet and that's put out like through the USDA and the federal government. Mm-hmm. And they collate it for you. And then they send you kind of emails and send you updates about, hey, this is what's available right now. And these are some of the options that you can do. So I, I do have a question. So what would be the downfall of if there would be downfalls of nonprofit organizations collaborating with other organizations and, and what do you feel like in in your opinion how do you feel like someone may look at it and be like oh this would be considered a downfall because of blah blah blah, blah. well i mean i don't know about the downfall but but um, uh, you certainly want to make sure that the organization has a track record 
um, that they've got a, a plan that makes sense, you know, that they've got people that are, you know, like their, their structure needs to be solid so that they've got people that are going to do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, basically the, the org needs to, to do what it says it's going to do. And, you know, so a lot of times track records are, are difficult, you know, and, and this is uh, one of the struggles that we're having as a new organization is that we don't necessarily have a track record. Mm-hmm. So when we're reaching out, um, you know, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll look, I'll, I'll point to my business track record. You know, because I've got over a dozen years uh, working with my own businesses. I've been, you know, a manager uh, going back 20, 25 years. I've, I've been a leadership position in the Army. So a lot of the things that, that I've done in, in my past are are now basically like it's part of our resume as, mm-hmm. an, as a nonprofit organization is like, okay, Michelle's background. Uh, she's the co-founder of the organization, and she's got 15 years of experience working with the state of Nevada in, mm-hmm. in, in the government infrastructure. So she's brought in, you know, millions of dollars for uh, their programs for fire service, for education, you know, all of those different programs that she was involved with. And so she's a master grant writer, and that is a powerful resource for a nonprofit to have. What does that mean? So um, so grant writing is a skill, and it is a, uh, it, it's, it's, it's been described to me as a combination of a skill and an art form. Okay. So you have, um, basically, like, you've got at the basic level, you've got the, you've got to have the ability to respond to a grant. <laughs> But you've also got to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the funding resource and say, you know, what do these people want and how can I craft our message of what we want into a, a way, into a format so that the people that are, that are reviewing my grant application recognize that this is something that they want and this is how it's going to uh, accomplish the things in the community that they want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I mean, that's a complicated process. And I'm, I'm you know... I, I know virtually nothing about it. I've been researching uh, w- w- for Michelle for grants that uh, grant applications, and we, we're in our third uh, year with the uh, USDA's SNAP Education Program, mm-hmm. which is a federal program that's implemented at the state level to provide educational resources for people who are SNAP eligible. Mm-hmm. And SNAP eligible people are anybody, you know, basically in the, I don't know what the exact number range is, but like twenty to twenty five thousand dollars a year or something un- under that. Um, you know, so families, depending on how many kids you've got, depending on how many dependents, it, you know, there's a whole kind of complicated process to be able to determine if you're SNAP eligible. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that, that, that is a problem in the U.S. is that a lot of people who are SNAP eligible don't know they are. Mm-hmm. And they don't know that these resources are available. So if you're leaving money on the table, if you're, if you're you know, not utilizing resources that are out there, then you're kind of hurting your family and you're hurting yourself. And, and, and a lot of times are failing, you know, on the nonprofit side is, is our inability to be able to get that information in front of the people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. And so you have to start looking at some of the barriers to access and some of the things that are holding people back, you know. I mean, and sometimes the 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 thing ends up being something that just seems so stupid. <laughs> like what? Like um, glasses. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people put out flyers and people put out, you know, website stuff and posters and billboards and all of those different things to try and get people to recognize these resources that are out there. And a lot of people that are out on the street, a lot of people that are in low income uh, situations, they don't have vision, uh, they don't have dental coverage. Mm -hmm. And so they don't have glasses or their glasses are horribly out of date or their contacts are broken or something. Something happens to where they don't have good vision and they have a difficulty just being able to see what the information is. Mm-hmm. And so those are some problems that, 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 that we've identified with focus groups and engagement meetings in the communities. These, these are some things that we need to try and address going forward. And there's some organizations, like I think um, Lions Club is an organization that that's their main thing is providing reading glasses to people in low-income, air, in, in low-income situations so that they can read 
you know, a, a report or they can read a flyer or an advertisement, that kind of thing. So, you know, going back to the, the partnership thing, yeah. that's something that we can potentially partner with Lions Club or with, you know, another organization like that and help to help them to identify people that we're intersecting with through our store. Mm-hmm. Then, hey, you know, uh, oh, we, we run into somebody like we could have a... Um, uh, somebody just stationed at the store, you know, like a volunteer or um, a Vista program member or somebody that's that's basically their job is to uh, is to just help people identify their SNAP eligibility. Mm-hmm. And so if we find somebody that's like low income and and we're able to get them signed up with SNAP and get them into a program to where they can get better resources and have a little bit more money to be able to put towards groceries then um, then we can start doing that. But we can also pass them over to, hey, you need to go over to the Lions Club and you'll be able to get yourself a pair of glasses. Gotcha. Or you need to go over to, you know, such and such organization, you can get some mental health, uh, you know, situations resolved. Or you can get your medications over here at this organization. And so, so really just th- that collaborative structure really kind of gets deep once you get into, you know, kind of on the ground level and you start talking to your clients and you start developing a clientele and you start developing a customer base. Mm-hmm. Because our goal Again, you know, at the end of the day, we're a nonprofit organization. You know, we're not trying to run a store, per se. We're, we're trying to effectuate change in the community by reducing barriers to food access. And that includes a whole spectrum of things that people are struggling with. You know, a lot of times it's just the chaos in their life. Mm-hmm. And you get too many things going on. You don't have transportation. You're struggling to try and get from here to there. And you don't have time or you don't have the energy or you don't have the resources to be able to get healthy food. And so a lot of times what it comes down to is us trying to just kind of help somebody plan out their day, plan out their meals, plan out their life just a little bit better and provide people with the tools that they need to be able to create a better structure for themselves. Yeah. And, and those collaborative efforts, you know, like I, I, I can't imagine us trying to take on the entire length and breadth of, of food insecurity yeah. by ourselves. Like Are that would sure? be insane. And a lot of organizations try and do just that. They try and reinvent the wheel. They want to be the one-stop shop, and they want to be everything to everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in my mind, at least, you've got to specialize. You've got to focus down on one thing that you do really well, and you've got to insert that into the system and into, into the, the social safety network and then make that a, a potent addition. And, something that, and, and for me, personally, it's important that everything that we do facilitates everything that everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you feel like, what are some barriers that you feel like should be broken? Well, I mean, the main barrier to food access in, 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 in urban areas as well as in rural areas is lack of transportation. That's like the number one on the list. So if, as you as a nonprofit organization um, with like, let's say, with like obviously on common ground, how do you feel like you would be able to, you say the main barrier would be transportation. So how do you feel like that you can find a way to help that out? Well, that's what we're doing right now. So the store, the, the physical store location is critical. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's why we've been focused on downtown Reno when we've been, de- been developing this project because we can put this store in any neighborhood, in any community around, around the area, and we could help that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that would be cool, and it's great. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to fix a, a larger kind of meta problem where these food desert areas are popping up all over town. So if you look at like East Sparks, and if you look at down, you know, Mira Loma area, if you look up at Sun Valley, if you look up in, in, you know, there's so many different areas all over town. And if you if you go on USDA's website, you can actually go to, they've got a uh, an atlas, and it's a real-time updated map, and it shows every food desert that's been identified all across the United States. Wow. And if you zero in on Reno Sparks area, there's 14 of them that are identified. Mm. So the cool thing about downtown Reno, even though it's got a little bit of food access, it's technically not 
in itself. I think I, I think it's technically not being identified as a food desert itself, even though it's got, you know, not enough grocery. It doesn't have a grocery store, but it's got all these little bodegas, and sometimes they count, sort of. Yeah. But the well, cool I... thing about putting the groceries there is that it allows us to provide a resource depot for everybody in all 14 of those sites because mm-hmm. the bus system runs through each one of them. Okay. So that's basically our solution is rather than, I don't know, figure out a way for everybody to get a car, which, you know, that's one option, right? I mean, that's something that we could have done. We went, hey, you know, let's figure out a way that more people can have cars. Okay, well, what's that doing to the community? What's that doing to the environment? What's, you know, you got to break it down. It's like, what is what is the benefit of, of doing that versus what's the cost of doing that? Mm-hmm. So if we add 20,000 more cars on the road, you know, that creates problems of its own. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is we're going the opposite direction. Instead of trying to get more get people more transportation, we're trying to get the food resources closer to the hub of the of the transportation that we've already got, so that they can be a little bit more efficient with their with their travels. Yeah. So it makes sense from that perspective to to put the retail store as close as possible to the you know kind of the transfer hub. Yeah. One of the main things that you wanted to get touched on is the fact that. You kept constantly saying the word common. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we are on common ground. Mm-hmm. And and that the reason why we created this name and the reason why we're called on common ground is because at the end of the day, everybody in the community needs to eat. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs food. This is the common ground. And food is the heart of the community. Like for tens of thousands of years of development, human beings have met around the kitchen table or the campfire or, you know, kind of the center of the, of the town area is usually the eating area. This is where everybody kind of congregates. And so. Kitchen talk. Yeah. Kitchen talk. Yeah. And people talk about it in politics. It's kitchen talk. And, mm-hmm. and so it, it, it is critically important to us, not just physically, but also mentally and emotionally that we have that access and that we have that sense of community. So we're not just trying to create an access point. We're also trying to communicate, tr- create a, what we're doing is creating a community center. Mm-hmm. This is a place where people meet and it's neutral territory and you can meet your neighbors maybe for the first time, you know, yeah. you see people shopping down in your neighborhood and people are walking and they've got their dogs and stuff like that. And that's, that's the sense of community that, you know, if you talk to a lot of people in the U.S., you know, people kind of recognize that we're starting to lose that. You know, we're losing that connection and we're losing that ability to be able to understand who our neighbors are and to be able to, you know, make a phone call and be like, hey, I need help. You know, a lot of that stuff's going away in U.S. culture and... And, and it, it's 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 tragic. It really is. And and that's something that we need to, uh, you, if at all possible, we need to push back against that as well as against, you know, kind of this physical lack of lack of food. So, what we're doing with the groceries is really hitting on a bunch of different notes. You know, mm-hmm. you're hitting on the food access issue. You're hitting on education so people can relearn, or or you know, really understand how to use raw foods. Which you know, that's an education component that's largely gone away from our K twelve education system. Mm-hmm. And even you know, you're in college. Have you taken a a home ec course since you've been to school? No. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you might have, you may have picked up some skills growing up. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people like me, I didn't. You know, the first time I was ever seriously in a kitchen and actually making a meal for myself, I was like 27 years old. Yeah. Like that's, and that's the experience of a lot Wait, of people. Wait, hold on, 27? Yeah. <laughs> Wait, why did why that like passed me and I was like, oh, 27. I was like, Wait, 27? Seriously? Yeah. What? Well, okay. So, so think about my timeline. So, from 13 through 17, I was in a military high school down in South Texas. True. The Marine Military Academy, and they had dining facilities, and you go and you put your tray in, and you fill up your plate, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I was I was at USC for 
a year and a half mm-hmm. before I dropped out and joined the Army. And that period of time, I was, you know, again, giant. UFC. USC. Oh, I was like. University of Southern California. Yeah. Yeah, so I was down in South Central. And matter of fact, um, the, the, the year that I joined the Army, after I, after I dropped out of school, because I, I didn't have money for tuition for another year, mm-hmm. and that was the same year that the L.A. riots happened, back in 92. Uh-huh. And which which created a really interesting story for me because I was actually stuck in kind of South Central, just east of downtown Los Angeles in the middle of the riots. Uh-huh. And we were all kind of stuck on campus and watching these fires rage around the community and just like, what is going on? Like, it, it, it was kind of like that. Like, we're just like, you know, half panic mode and half yeah. like, what's going on? Literally, like I was at a... Um, I was at a at a, a living facility, like a multi-story, you know, kind of a dorm, and I was over to, at a friend's place, and we were looking out from the seventh floor, and I looked down, and I saw a guy get shot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was like that, like that stuff was right where we were, you know. Oh my god! And uh, one of the things that happened was uh, the the National Guard got called out to protect the Thirty Second Street Market that was across the street from USC campus. Yeah. And it turned out that that Thirty Second Street Market was a grocery store. It was the last grocery store that had not been burned down within like a five mile radius of that area of of, of Los Angeles. Oh wow! And so I was, I was, you know, me and my friends were going out and we were uh, uh, giving like coffee and donuts from the dining facility out to these National Guard members and be like, hey, you know, thanks for protecting our, our yeah. space and everything. And I asked a, a couple of them, like, what do you, you know, so like, what's what's the deal? Like, why are you guys out here? And they explained to me like what was going on is basically because the riots were going on and because everybody was basically stuck in the city that and, and because all of the grocery stores around the area had been burned down, that there wasn't any way to logistically get food into that part of the city. And so what was happening is they, the, the governor of the state of California recognized that if that store went down and got burnt, then mi- literally millions of people in that part of Los Angeles would have, would have been in danger of starving mm. because they wouldn't have been able to get out of that area to go get where, you know, to go get where food is. And food doesn't, it's, you can't just bring food and put it out on a, on a sidewalk, right? Mm-hmm. Like you've got to have a store. You've got to have a place to put it. Mm-hmm. And you've got to have refrigeration facilities for the, the refrigeratable food. You've got to have frozen facilities for the frozen food. Like that, you've got to have a store. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's just no substitution for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was, even before I joined the Army, I, had, I got this understanding of the importance of the logistics of, of having a retail store mm-hmm. placement. And that, you know, God, that was more than 20 years ago. 92, 12. God, it's almost 30 years ago now. Oh my gosh, Shannon. Seriously. I'm aging, I'm, 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 I'm aging myself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I'm doing this to myself right now. But yeah, that, that was me. A 19 year old kid. I'm, you know, bright eyed, didn't have a brain in the world. You know, I'm sitting here looking at this situation. I'm like, oh wow. You know, this is, this is kind of an eye opening situation. Yeah. And then of course I joined the army and, and got into a, a, a job field that, that very much, addressed these issues over in, you know, third world developing nations, over in partner countries, that kind of thing. So it, it kind of all just gelled in my brain and, and it became, you know, one of those things that I, I would think about when I start thinking about how do we, you know, create these changes. Yeah. Is that, that logistics need. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So my fun story for the day. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, for, I even forgot what we were talking about beforehand. Oh, yeah. So yeah, of course, then I joined the army and, and, you know, same thing, you've got the dining facilities, you've got, you know, you don't, you just don't cook your own food. Oh yeah. You know, there's yeah, re- yeah, yeah. very, very rarely do you, are you in a situation where you're making your own meal? Like even MREs, I'm maybe heating it up on the engine block of a Humvee, but that's about as far as it goes. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I got out of, out of service in 98 and I had, you know, for the first time I had my own kitchen mm-hmm. and I had to, you know, go down to 
go down to the, the box store and pick up like the, you know, that box of, of starter plates. That you get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like when you're first time and you go to the, to, to the, you know, in, in college or anything, like you've got this little box of plates yeah. and you get your cups and it's just enough for you know, service for four or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I just had no clue. I mean, just absolutely no clue what to do. I didn't know where to start on cooking food. I didn't even know that you had to, like, rinse your plates off after you were done. Like, I mean, it was just... It, it could be intimidating sometimes. It is. It's very intimidating. And, and what we keep finding out when we're doing, again, going back to our common ground and what we're yeah. doing now, is we're finding out that a very large percentage of the people that are in vulnerable situations don't have these skills and are intimidated by food. One of the... Um, we conducted one of the focus groups over at the senior center. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking to this one guy, and he was about 65, and his wife had died about 10 years earlier, and mm-hmm. he was, um, you know, diabetic, and he was, you know, very obese, and he was afraid of food. And he was, and I remember, he was specifically afraid of fish. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he'd heard about people getting sick off of it. He didn't really... Mercury and stuff? Tr- yeah, mercury, but like, you know, cooking temperatures, that oh, kind of thing. Okay. So, like, he didn't really trust himself to, to understand how to do it safely, and, yeah. and, and so much of the you know, kind of conversation and the information that you get is a little bit of scare tactics going on. You know, that's kind of part of marketing. And so he just, he didn't, you know, he would go get a burger and that, that was, that was safe. He knew somebody else cooked it. He knew he could trust, you know, whatever place that was getting a burger from. And so that was his meal every single day. Wow. And then he'd get like his lunch over at the senior facility that was like healthy and balanced. And you had the chefs back there, you know, taking care of it. But that was the only meal that was like balanced and everything else. He would get a burger or he'd get some fries or get whatever, you know, kind of he wanted at that point. But, but he, he was smart enough to have made the connection about his lifestyle and, and his health situation. Like, he knew that he was in danger. You know, he knew he was in a, in, in a, in a very dangerous situation, that he was, you know, in symphian diabetes. Like, all of these things that were, like, you know, he, realistically, he's probably not going to last that much longer if he doesn't change his, you know, what he does and change yeah. his focus and change it. But the question is, where do you start? Exactly. That's the big question is, where do I start? Like, what's the first step? Like, I don't even know what to do. Yeah. You know, and there's so much cross-communication and so much stuff that's that's hitting you. It's it's almost like people just get buried by too much information. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, so I mean, you know, I, I think you and I probably deal with the same thing. It's like, how do you choose which soda? Or how do you, you know, figure out which, you know, meal? Or, you know, you've got the meat industries pushing meat. So, okay, is meat good? Is it bad? You know, like, is it is it fats versus sugar? Like, I mean, you've got all this crazy stuff Yeah, definitely. I, I moved up here by myself. So, I didn't have really much knowledge of how to cook, how to buy my own groceries or anything like that. I literally moved here with none of that in in in, in my in my head. And I had to look up what's good and what's not. Like, I, it was so hard. And even me, like, now trying to cook, if I ever try to cook chicken, I think I overcook it because I'm scared of having it be pink. Yeah. I, I get terrified. And I th- and, and that's what's, what's really interesting about that is that's what we're trying to do with the affiliation program that we're setting up to is, okay, so let's say, let's say talk about your situation. Talk about chicken. So chicken. You're, you're not quite sure what to cook it to. And you, so you overcook it, and that probably doesn't taste that great, right? Sometimes it doesn't, yeah. I, so, I'm so ashamed of myself. Well, don't be ashamed. No, I mean, uh, this is this is the learning process. But, like, what – okay, so what if our organization turns you on to a tool that you can use to, so that you always know what the temperature is in the in, in the chicken? What would that be? Like a thermometer? Yeah, like a, like a just a, a, a kitchen thermometer. But you get the ones that's like the digital ones, mm-hmm. and you can stick it in the meat and leave it in there, and it's it's safe in the in the in like in an oven if you're oh, cooking or, okay. or in the skillet. You can just leave it in there, and whenever it hits the temperature, you're like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. And and some of them that I've seen, and they're not expensive. I mean, we're talking like ten bucks. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. These, things, these things are super naughty. I mean, I'm talking like high tech, hundreds of dollars type stuff. Yeah. But it's things that people don't think about. And, and if you're scared of the food and if you've got a tool that can help you to, to define, okay, this is the safe cooking temperature for fish. This is the safe cooking temperature for chicken, mm-hmm. for meat, for, you know, eggs, for whatever it is that you're making, then that's going to take away one of those barriers for you. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and then it's going to make maybe make you more excited about eating chicken because now you don't have to overcook it just to be safe. You cook it to exactly what the thermometer says and you, you know, put a couple of seasonings on it and you go to town. It's like, okay, cool. Now I've got my chicken figured out. Yeah. I got, I'm dialed in on the chicken. <laughs> now I really want chicken. Yeah. Yeah. It's like next stop the moon. I'm dialed in on the chicken. Like that's all you need. <laughs> and, and it's that confidence and it's that, oh my God, success. Mm-hmm. That, that's what people crave and that's what people are missing. Mm-hmm. And so what we're trying to do is we're, we're encouraging these small steps. We're creating the opportunity to break down these barriers and, cre- and, and basically lighting a path for people. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, you know, we can we can open the doors on our store all day long, but if people don't know how to use raw dry beans, for instance, or if they don't know how to cook rice, or if they don't know how to turn flour into bread, like mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of steps involved that like it's intimidating, and a lot of people assume that you have to be a professionally trained chef in order to do these things. Yeah, but you don't. You don't. You don't. You you, really do, you don't. do not. You can be an enthusiast. I mean, enthusiast. Yeah, which is which is different from an amateur because you're enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. You want to know this difference between an amateur and enthusiastic? Enthusiasm. That's it. That's the difference. Yeah. It's the enthusiasm. And, and if you can approach food with that mindset mm-hmm. of enthusiasm and excitement and this is an adventure and this is joyous, you know, this is fun. Mm-hmm. then you're going to be a lot more likely to go back to it. So what we want to avoid is we want to avoid frustrating situations where somebody is exhausted and they just had a long day at work and they just got the kids you know, home and they, they, they're, they're juggling all of these things and they're freaking out and they're trying to figure out how am I going to make dinner. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the challenge. That's a barrier. That's a major barrier that keeps people from, you know what, I'm just too tired to make dinner tonight. Let's go to the drive-through. Let's go to, you know, the, the pizza joint. Let's go to wherever it is and, and just get something easy. And that ends up becoming the, the, the default go-to. And yeah. so what we're trying to do is what we're doing is we're creating new defaults that mm-hmm. people can, can choose. So, you know, like, um, did I ever tell you about our bean dip recipe? Um, we've talked about it because I've tried it. Okay. And it's good. It's really good. It's really All right. good. So the, the, the secret about that bean dip recipe is that there's no fats in it. There's mm-hmm. no oils. Mm-hmm. There's no grease. Um, there's very little salt. You know, so it's a low-sodium meal. It's vegan by itself. Okay. So it, it doesn't have a lot of things in it that people are worried about. How does it have so much flavor then? I know, right? Okay, so so oh. what we did was we put <laughs> – you, you, uh, you got your salt and pepper. You've got your um, – so we put a ton of serrano peppers in there. Oh. And if you want it really spicy, so the difference between, okay, so serrano peppers are, are, are funky because they're tiny little peppers and they're super hot. Oh, definitely. But the majority of the heat is in the seeds. Mm-hmm. So if you take all the seeds out, then you're really just getting the flavor of the serrano. And that would be what I would call like a mild bean dip. Oh, okay. I get you. And if you leave the seeds in, then it makes it a lot hotter and spicier. Definitely. And so that's kind of the way I go typically is the hotter, spicier side. I grew up in New Mexico, so like I got, I got, I need the flavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's got, um, it's got onions, it's got the beans, and, it's, and we use a mix of black and pinto beans mm-hmm. to, to get, you know, kind of like a, a, a little, you know, kind of flavor uh, difference in there. And then uh, uh, we get the serrano peppers, we've got like cumin paprika we've got uh, some new mexico chili powder that i've got because you know i got to represent hatch all the time 
And, and, and you put this all together and you throw it into a slow cooker or you throw it into an Instapot or you throw it on the stove in a skillet. It doesn't matter how you do it. You know, you got, you got your big pot on the stove for 45 minutes, like however long it takes. But you just cook this thing down. And then once you get it cooked, you only have to do that once. And it doesn't matter how much you make. Mm-hmm. You just have an, as, as much as you can store, you cook as much as you can. And then you just put it into like some c- containers, some Tupperware, some two-quart containers. Like I use used uh, soup containers. Mm-hmm. from, uh, you know, I buy soup, you know, buy a two liter thing, we'll have a lunch and then I'll just hold on to it, wash it out. Yeah. And then we've got food for, you know, the, through the winter. Mm-hmm. And so you take this, this process and once you get this done, so this is what's called batch cooking. You, mm-hmm. you, you make, you make way more than you need and then you eat what you need and then you store the rest. Mm-hmm. And because this is a freezable recipe, you could pull out a container of this and just let it defrost in the fridge and it'll be ready for the next day. So you could constantly have a supply of this bean dip base. Mm-hmm. And what I do, and the reason I call it a bean dip is because after I cook it, I put it into my food processor and I just puree it. Mm-hmm. And then you've got something that you can just reach in and eat with chips and it's absolutely delicious by itself. Yeah. Or if you don't want to do that, you can use it as a base. You can take a tortilla, put some of the bean dip on top of it, mm-hmm. and then you can put some chicken on that. You can put some pork. You can put whatever you want on top of that. And, and the bean recipe has all of your vegetables in it. It's got all of your flavors, it's got all your spices, tastes amazing. Doesn't matter what you do with it. Mm-hmm. But it makes it to where anything else that so if you want to do your chicken and you want to slice it up and you want to throw it on onto like a sandwich or something like that, you throw this bean dip on there and that's where you get your flavor from. So this is kind of an example of what we're trying to teach people is like, okay, you can do something once a week or even once every two weeks or even once a month if you've got enough storage. Mm-hmm. And, and then not have to worry about it. And then anytime you want it, it's just sitting there waiting for you. And it's exactly what your flavors are. And it's exactly what you like. And, and it's easy. And like, you know, I, okay, so here's a story. Okay. All right. I, I, get, I get all these stories in my head of just, just situations that I've run into in my life. And, and so for a year and a half when I was living down in Vegas, I was working at a call center south of the airport. And I was working for Micron Computers as a tech support specialist okay. on the phone. So I was a phone tech support guy. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I didn't have to fake any accents or anything like that. I was right here in the States. <laughs> but uh, I remember one time, and it was, it was shortly before I ended up quitting the job, but I, I remember one time I got on this call with this lady who was, she was a, a, a sales professional and she was, you know, master's degree and that kind of thing. And she really thought a lot of herself oh. and had the ego and everything. But... She, she was kind of getting in her own way, and what we were trying to do was replace her motherboard. Like, she had just gotten her motherboard in, and she was calling us to be able to walk her through replacing the motherboard on her computer. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've ever looked in the inside of a computer. No, I haven't. Okay, so the motherboard is basically what everything else is plugged into. Oh, so, okay. so in I order, can really just imagine how it looks like. I'm like, ill. So, so, so basically, when what I was trying to do was walk this lady through taking the entire computer apart, oh, no. replacing the main component, and then putting it all back together, and then reloading the operating system. Oh, poor lady. We, yeah, poor me. Um, <laughs> we got through 45 minutes of the call, and I hadn't been able to successfully figure out how to explain to this woman how to get the side panel off yet. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I was so frustrated. I was like, I was going to walk away from the computer and just, just not even look back. And I was like, listen, ma'am, is there anybody else in the house besides you? <laughs> and she's like, no, there's nobody here. Just me and my 12 year old kid. So I, I tell the lady, I'm like, Hey, can you get your kid on the phone? Yeah. And she's like, what? He's, he's 12. He's not, I was like, listen, let me, let me give it a try. Mm-hmm. Let's figure this out. We got to, we, one way or another, we got to get your computer running. So let's, let's put your kid on the phone. Let's see if he can, you know, kind of work it through. So an hour and 15 minutes later, 
we had the motherboard completely replaced. All mm-hmm. of the equipment was put back together, and I, I let them go with the operating system kind of started, and, and they had to go through like a two-hour process of loading the OS, but everything. But it's just that mindset of like, okay, you, you, you don't think about kids having uh, the ability necessarily to, to solve problems and to kind of work on complicated things, especially if you're, you know, having these problems yourself. Mm-hmm. But, and, and this is something that I think we're, we're, we're understanding as a nation and as a planet is like the kids are really kind of plugged in and they understand a lot of these things that, that you know, that we didn't necessarily grow up doing. And, and I mean, you're in the, you're of the age range that you probably know a lot more about computers than I do at this point. <laughs> Maybe. And, and, What's really cool is that if we can start creating, and, and then going back to the food thing, if we can start creating solutions that can allow these 12-year-old kids or these 8-year-old kids or even somebody as, as young as 6 to be able to pull some stuff out of the fridge and slap it onto you know, a tortilla or a sandwich or something like that and just build a meal mm-hmm. that's healthy and, nutrition, and tr- nutritious and that tastes good, now this kid's going to be empowered, but also the mom and the dad are going to be empowered because they don't have to necessarily scramble around every time for every meal and, and service everybody. They can just break the stuff out and everybody takes care of themselves. So it reduces people's stress mm-hmm. and it reduces the chaos that, yeah. that people have to deal with. And that ultimately is what we're trying to do. Yeah. We're, we're, the, the ultimate barrier to pe- in people's lives is the chaos and just the inability to find enough time to do everything. Yeah. So if we can put some stuff into place, if we can st- put some solutions into place that allow people to be able to take some of their time back mm-hmm. and to be able to use it towards, you know, uh, you know, more important functions, just being with family, you know, just whatever it is, we're going to be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the ultimate goal of what, we're, of what we're doing is, you know, we want to focus on the healthy nutrition. We want to focus on, you know, making half of your plate fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a SnapEd program. Thank you very much, SnapEd. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it, it's important that we get these messaging out and that we get people understanding, you know, like basically, the, you know, kind of the framework. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is just about getting the tools in people's hands mm-hmm. and getting people feeling like they can do something instead of can't do something yeah definitely and once we get that once we flip that switch you know it's it's off to the races like there's just no end in sight and there's no stopping people once they once they get the basics in their hand definitely so that's where we're going (laughs) (laughs) all right but we do need to end this episode now absolutely yeah we got some people waiting for the room thank you very much for taking the time with me uh once again this is uh uh, mercado and i'm shannon dobbs and we are all on common ground Nice. (laughs) Bye.